0: Welcome to Oikos. We are in Paul's first sermon, and so it looks like we're a little empty today, right? But are you guys going to bring the Spirit, right? Okay, good. Because otherwise, I feel this section right here. Is, I see nobody. So compare... Oh, thank you, Tony. So compared to last Sunday, we had a full house. This Sunday, we have the people who decided to get up out of bed and come to church on this beautiful day. Amen. Amen. So we continue Paul's first sermon. If you remember last week what we were talking about with Paul, he was really just led by the Spirit to stand up and speak in a synagogue, really what you could consider enemy territory. And he said, I have a message to share. And he was speaking primarily to Jews and to those who we would say were god fears or Gentiles, who said, I kind of have an affinity towards this Jewish God, this Yahweh. Today, Paul continues on with that message. And he, when I left off last week, he just uttered the name Jesus. And then he continues here in verse 28. So we're in Acts chapter 13. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible next to you. You'll find Acts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And if you want to follow along with me, it's also up on the screen, but if you want to learn a little bit more about where that's located in the Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 13. Verse 28, they found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. They're spe- he's speaking about Jesus here. When they had done all that the prophecy said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. So with the rest of the world, with you and I and really for the rest of the world since that time, 2,000 years ago. There's one thing that we share in common. That's death. This is the story for most of us. We will be dead. Right? Anybody not going to die here? Maybe, right? Maybe if you if we are blessed enough to see Jesus come again before we die, we will not die. Otherwise, we're going to die. I don't want to blow anybody here, but pretty much you're going to die. It's for sure. Um, Whether it's a car accident or maybe it's old age, there's one thing that will happen, and that's that you will die. So Paul hits this first thing of, You took Jesus, you killed him, and he died. He was dead, and you put him in a tomb. Everyone knew that Jesus was killed. This was no secret. Everyone knew that he was placed in a tomb, and he was dead. Only a few people in the history of the world escaped death. Does anyone want to take a guess who those people were? (laughs) Wow. <laughs> Woo! I'll list that out from here. Immediately, Enoch and Elijah. Yeah, Enoch, remember, Enoch was this guy who walked with God. And then he was no more. And so from Scripture, we just kind of look at Enoch and we go, he must not have died. So God just took him. We don't know how. And then you got Elijah who was taken by a fiery chariot. The fiery chariot took him up into heaven, and he was no more. But for the rest of us, even for the woman that Jesus raised from the dead, even Lazarus, his very best friend, he was raised from the dead, but guess what? Lazarus still died. There's no account or history saying other than that, that Lazarus still faced death. It's one of the things that we're all, who's scared of death? Come on. When you've So I try to tell myself I'm not scared. So I'm going to jump into those who didn't raise their hands. You tell yourself that you're not scared. I'm not scared because I believe in Jesus. But now, come on. If you're in a room and someone has a knife and they're coming after you and you don't have a knife, I think I'd be scared. If I am going to be shot by someone at a convenience mart and he's got a gun to me, I think I'm going to be scared. I want to have peace, and so I think in my mind I'm going to be kind of going back and forth going, I shouldn't be scared because I love Jesus and there's a future ahead of me. However, I don't see that future yet. And I really don't want to be shot. I think I'm scared to death. What if you go to the hospital and you get told, or you go to the doctor and you get told that you have cancer? You get scared. We have fear because we are sinful. Because even though we may have great faith, Our faith is tested. So what Paul is doing in this message is he's relating directly into their lives that, look, Jesus faced death. He died. He is the same as the rest of us here. He knows what it's like to face death, to have, though he didn't, fear. A reluctance to kind of enter that death. There's no way to escape it. From the beginning of time, from all the way back to the Garden of Eden, from the moment that they sinned, that was the curse. And I think for many people, that's one of the questions they have about life. What will death be like? Would you agree? So what happens when we die? You guys are like, man, maybe I should have gone on that bike ride. Um, I've got a good friend. His his name is Matt Popovitz, and he put together this video. It's called The How Cost, and um, what he's trying to do is put out some things on YouTube for people who are questioning, what is faith like? What does this look like to be a Jesus follower, to learn the ways, the works, in the words of Jesus. And so we're going to take a look at his video as he answers this question, what happens when you die?
1: If you asked 30 different people what happens when you die, you'd probably get 30 different answers. But you asked me, so I'll just give you four. <laughs> Everything that's taught among the world's major religions about life after death can be fit into one of four groups. Four buckets, so to speak. One of four caskets, I guess you could say. Not funny? Got it. First is the idea of permanent annihilation. That is, when you die, the lights go out, forever. No consciousness, no spirit, no haunting a house and scaring kids, just nothing. If you hold to a strict view of atheistic evolution, this is probably your view. However, there are some religions, sects of Christianity even, that hold to permanent annihilation as the punishment for those that don't believe. Second, there is the idea of a permanent spirit life. Though the body dies, the spirit, or the human energy, lives on in another form, in another realm, presumably where everything is bright and white and your dead relatives are not annoying. Let's hope. Some like to think that once you become a spirit, you'll be able to watch what is happening among those that are still alive, kind of like a really creepy version of reality TV. Third is the idea of perpetual reincarnation. In this view, physical life is repeated over and over. For example, Hinduism teaches that this cycle, called samsara, can be broken when one reaches a higher level of awareness called moksha. Once that cycle is broken, one simply joins the essential, energy of the universe. This cycle can also be broken by convincing Andy McDowell to love you, as taught in Groundhog's Day. The fourth major understanding of the afterlife is that of rest and resurrection. This is held by Christians, Muslims, and Orthodox Jews. The Christian view in particular is comprised of three major components, rest, resurrection, and restoration. Christianity teaches that after death, though the body goes to the ground, the soul rests with God. That's about as much insight as the Bible gives. The soul then waits for the return of Christ to the earth, at which point the dead will rise and every soul will be reconnected to every body. Some will then be sent to a physical eternity apart from God, that's bad, and others to a physical eternity with God, that's good. That physical eternity will be a never-ending flesh and blood life in a recreated world where the effects of sin, like death, war, and mourning breath, are erased and God dwells with his people. In fact, it's this time of resurrected bodies and renewed creation that the Bible speaks of whenever it talks of heaven. That word, heaven, is reserved to describe that place that is recreated in the end, not where your grandmother currently resides right now. I'm sorry for your loss. She, in the Christian framework, is, as a baptized member of his family, simply resting with Jesus, which sounds like a decent place to be. That said, none of us is dead, and there's no one in the world with any first-hand knowledge of the subject. Sure, some have claimed to have died and gone to heaven. I have died and gone to heaven. Literally. I'm here. I'm dead. That's why it's white all over the place. But their story should be taken with a grain of salt. A really, really tiny grain of salt. Barely even see it. Oh no. Now what am I gonna do? After all, one such storyteller, a man named Alan Malarkey, that's his real name, has recently recanted his story as entirely false. What we're left with are the promises of those four main views. The question you have to ask yourself is which of those views is the most logical? Which is the best ending to your story? Which one offers you the most tangible hope?
0: I like to think of Paul in this message as he's standing in this synagogue. He knows one of the major things that people wrestle with is death. Now, if you were a Jewish, first century Jewish guy or lady, you were thinking the only way I'm going to make it and not be annihilated is if I do enough good stuff, if I go and have my sins atoned so that I can then receive God's blessing. Because as I stand right now, I'm not good enough for God to give eternal life to. I believe that some of us in the room wrestle with that right now. Even though we say we are Christian. Because Satan loves to play this little trick on us that says, you know that stuff you did? You're not part of God's family. God can't see you. Your sin is too grave. You'll never be accepted into his family. That's what he likes to play, right? I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'll raise mine and say, happens to me all the time. I'm supposed to be the one with the big faith, right? But I'm the one that Satan tries to say, Aaron, who are you fooling? You're not really a son of God. And he attacks my identity that God so freely gave to me. Not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did right here. Because of what the Jews did to Jesus, by killing him, we were given life. Paul continues in chapter 13, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. This is where the story of Jesus changes from our story. Changes from, we've got something in common with Jesus, we're going to die. And then it comes into this, here's where our hope is. That if we share the story of Jesus, though we may die, God will raise us from the dead. Amen? And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. And now we are here to bring you this good news. The promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus. This is what the second psalm says about Jesus. You are my son. Today I become your father. And we know something very true in Scripture, that when God says something about Jesus, because the blood of Jesus has been shed on us, we are robed with something new. It's the clothes of Jesus. So when God looks upon us, regardless of what our past is, regardless of how bad we think our sin is, regardless of how dark we think our thoughts are. God looks at us and he sees Jesus. Because he sees Jesus, he says these same words to you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Today I become your father. There's no, you can't be in the family. In fact, it's all about being in the family. It's about recognizing that God because of what he's done and said that he gives you that identity of son or daughter. So for the Jews that were sitting in the synagogue they were thinking well I thought I was a son or daughter just simply because of Abraham. So that I'm a son of God but I'm kind of an exiled son of God unless I atone for my sins. So Paul is saying, look, these words are the same words that are true for you today. No more working for your atonement. No more worrying every day, did I do enough to receive eternal life? No more worrying, oh crap, I just sinned. I just said crap in church. I just sinned again. I'm doomed. No, because the atonement is over everything. You can't move yourself away by your sin and say God's atonement no longer works. The only thing you can do is say, I don't want your atonement, Lord, and walk away. So if we wrestle with anything, I don't want you to wrestle with Has God done enough to save me? Because He has. I want you to wrestle with Am I willing to receive it every day? Because God thinks you're worthy of it. That's not me saying it, it's God in Second Psalm. You are my son or daughter. And if any of you have children, you know that the moment that you say that, that you welcome someone in as your son or daughter, it means that you would do anything for them. And that's what God says. Paul would later write um, write to the church of Rome. This is Romans chapter 18, verses 15 and 17. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves instead you receive god's spirit when he adopted you as his own children now we call him abba father or daddy for his spirit joins us with our spirit to affirm to affirm that we are really god's children and since we are his children we are his heirs in fact together with christ we are heirs of god's glory but if we are to share his glory we must also share his suffering We are heirs. But what Satan wants to tell us is that we have no share of the kingdom of heaven. You're too ugly. You should be shameful. You can't enter the presence of God. Paul says, no, the Father in heaven sees you as his son or his daughter. Which means, of course, you have a place at his table. Of course, you're welcome in his home. Of course, he wants you with him every day, every hour. Well, maybe if you're a father, you don't totally agree with that because you kind of go, "Ooh, I don't know if I want my kids with me every hour. <laughs> but he's a better father than I am. So when I start getting confused, I go, Boy, if he's a better father than I am, some of you are like, well, that doesn't take much. If he's a better father than I am, then he does all the things that I don't. All the things that I think, oh, I should do that with my kid. Whoops, I've missed it. He does it because he loves us that much. Acts 13, Paul continues. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains that more fully, you will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David, for after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. The most favorite person Jew was David. He was the one that the Messiah should be emulated after. He was the one that should be just like what the Messiah would look like. This son of Jesse, this one who would restore the kingdom, bring back peace and prosperity and everything to the Jewish people. But Paul goes and says, Look, David, the guy that you love, he died. Just like you'll die. And guess what? David, he died when was placed in the tomb like Jesus was. But he rotted. And Jesus was raised from the grave. Jesus is a better Messiah than what you were hoping for. Jesus was a better Messiah than what you were hoping for. He didn't want to continue this whole thing of, atoning for your sins and bringing in sacrifices, hoping it was enough, that your sheep was pretty enough or your bull was fat enough. Jesus came and said, I'm enough. I'm enough. Put all that other stuff away. Verse 37, no, it was a reference to someone else, someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in, believes in him is declared right with God, something the law of Moses could never do. Jesus doesn't just bring in a new kingdom as the Messiah. He doesn't just restore what was already broken. See, one king after another after David messed up even more until the kingdom became something that was unrecognizable, and soon it became no more because the Jewish people were exiled because they were taken over by the Assyrians. That was the history of the Jews. So they're sitting there, and they know this history, but they want to return back to the time of David Because, oh, that time was so great. But what Paul's saying is, that kingdom wasn't all that great, guys. It wasn't that great. It didn't last very long. It didn't get you very far. You're not prosperous now. But Jesus brings in a brand new kingdom. One that lasts forever. One that changes your mode of thinking. One that offers salvation. And an answer to death. Now do you want David's kingdom? Or do you want Jesus? So for those of you that wrestle with this whole idea, you're not Jewish, but you're Christian. And those mornings you wake up and you go, I just don't know if I'm really saved or if I really have an answer to death. What do I need to do so that God will love me again? I've struggled with that. What do I need to do so that God will love me? There's only one thing that God asks us to do. There's only one thing that Jesus told the people to do. Repent and believe. Acknowledge that you're sinful. Say, I am. I'm a miserable, I'm a horrible, or I'm a really good sinner. And I'm so messed up that even when I don't want to sin, I end up sinning. Even when I know I shouldn't say what I was going to say, then I say it to someone else just because I can't say it to the person that I wanted to say it to, so I say it somewhere else. I love sin. So, God, help me to start hating sin and instead loving you. Repentance means more than a sorry. So, it means you live your life not going, oh, well, this is, I don't know why this just, but it just entered my head, so I'm just going to say it. Whoops, I did it again. Britney Spears, right? Why do I know that? So it's not that. It's not a whoops, I did it again. It's God, change me. Change my heart and the desire that's in my heart that goes after that sin, whatever it may be. Whether it's your ambition to be the best for yourself, whether it's your appetite of lust or greed or whether you're seeking approval from the person that's sitting next to you this morning instead of God. Repentance means you go, Lord, help change my heart. And as you change my heart, I'm going to see you more clearly. As I see you more clearly, I begin to see who Jesus really is. My Savior. He told me, you're in the family. There's nothing you need to do to belong. Just stay with me. And then you pray for faith. Lord, help me believe that each day. So Jesus, his message to the people. John the Baptist, his message to the people. Repent and believe that Jesus has come. Verse 31 in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this to the church of Rome. He knows that they struggle. They're in a society that is much like ours, where there's temptations and opportunities to forget God on every corner, where greed is established pretty much is part of the culture. And he writes to them, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day, We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours in Christ, who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death or life. Neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you struggle and you look at God and you go, what can I do to make you love me again? Remember these words that Paul wrote because I think he struggled with the same thing. Remember, his history is ugly. If anyone should have said, "I don't know if I have an open door to be with God," is the one who, say, who said himself he was the enemy of God and killed everyone who tried to follow the ways and the works and the words of Jesus. So don't be pompous and think that your sin somehow is bigger than Paul's, because I doubt it is. So Jesus looks at your sin and he says, I've already taken it. All I want you to do is listen to my words. Walk in my ways. And do my works. Bring peace to people. When you see someone who feels like they have no place in the, in the family of God, speak words and connect the story the story of Jesus, it says everyone has a place in the family of God. If you simply come to Jesus. May you walk out not with fear. And if someone comes up to you at a convenience store and you think your death is near and you're fearful, even that fear can't separate you from the love of God. Even if you fail in that moment, you can't be separated. If you go to the hospital and you get bad news, and you go, they say they can do nothing. I think I'm going to die. You may well be right. But even that fear can't separate you from God's family. If you repent and you believe, Jesus says the door is wide open. You don't need to bring anything. You don't need to do anything. You just walk in and say, I'm with Jesus. You ready to say you're with Jesus? I hope so because if you're, I mean, I don't want anyone to get shot today, but if you get in that process I want you to say I'm with Jesus and I'm okay. I may be like, I may have to change my shorts, but I, I'm i with Jesus because he loves me and I'm his son or I'm his daughter and there's nothing in this world that can separate me from him. Nothing. Because I'm with Jesus. And even though my faith may be weak, God doesn't measure oh, well, this person has this much faith and this person has this much faith, so this person can be with me. No, he says, everyone who has faith in my son is with me. Everyone. He doesn't measure you and say, oh, this person has done this many good things. This person, man, they barely did anything. Everyone's with me. Now, I will tell you, he will speak to the person who lacks faith and says, come on, have faith in me. I've never failed you. He does speak to the person who does nothing and say, Jesus showed you the work that's before you. Now, get busy. Be a part of the family. May we go out with the full assuredness that Jesus is with us. Amen? And as we go with him, he goes with us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. As we think about Paul's first sermon, may it speak to us 2,000 years later. May we hear those words of reassurance that Jesus has done everything. He has opened up the doors and there's a place at the table for us as part of the family. Lord, help us, help us to hold on to that identity as sons or daughters of God. Remind us that we're heirs of a kingdom. And because we are heirs, the full power and authority of our fathers behind us. And as we go out, we have the power and the ability, because we're heirs of the kingdom, to make change, to bring hope, to bring peace to those who are suffering those who are scared, for those who have no hope. Lord, may we be about the words, the works, and the ways of Jesus until he does come again. Amen.